Hello, I'm Richard Del Connor, founder of Shaolin Records in 1984. I'm producing eight podcast shows for CoyoteRadio.tv. CoyoteRadio.tv is the newest, weirdest radio show we have yet to imagine. I'm also producing a blues rock record for Kung Fu Cowboy called Scorpion Resurrection. Uh, This Shaolin Records podcast will usually have three sections, but I think we're going to probably break all the rules today, um, talk about some stories of me in Newfoundland and uh, something about producing and directing. But the third section is my favorite, where we dig up some basement tapes, some of those uh, lo-fi recordings of some magnificent performances that were just astoundingly uh, artistic, creative, or just perfect in their own way. The basement tapes. So let's have fun. This is Shaolin Records Podcast. This is the Shaolin Records Podcast, where Buddha rocks. I've been reminiscing about my years in Newfoundland. Back in the, well, 1970, 71, and 72. And the stories of Lukey's boat have been, well, I don't have as many stories as I guess I could have. And so maybe I'm going to have to segue from the Lukey's boat rock band, classical music rock band, into a band that I created with my best friend, Abby, Wayne Ab Stockwood, which was called Dog Meat. I think I actually came up with the name, but it's the kind of name that he would have come up with. And he obviously liked it. I liked it. We were both kind of sassy, kind of punky. Uh, he was a guitar player. He played the Fender Telecaster. Never my favorite guitar, but he loved it. And uh, and I didn't mind whatever he wanted to play. It was fine with me. But uh, it wasn't never my. It was never my favorite guitar, but it was his. And I think he had quite a few of them over the years. So anyway, yeah, Wayne, yeah, Abby, Ab, yeah, Ab. That's what I used to call him. We used to go hunting and hiking and fishing and shooting and and played music together. Uh, he was a good friend of mine. I can remember. Setting a creating a fire out there in the in the snow, you know, and uh, and, and getting out a can of spinach and opening it up and heating it up and having it with some tea and in the middle of the winter, with snowshoes on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that those were, in fact, well, those were Don music adventures. But yes, most people don't understand what it was like to to travel in in the winter in Newfoundland in the bogs. I, I've only told the story a couple of times, but when we would go hunting, there was marshes, bogs is what they literally were, bogs, which is basically a level area of land or semi-level, but it's just full of nothing but mush. It's always got water. There's some kind of water. Somewhere at the other end of the valley, there's water coming into this, and probably at the other end of the valley, it's kind of seeping out, but it's not enough to make a river, and it just kind of fills up the whole valley, and it's always wet all year long. So it's basically just a breeding ground for bugs. It's there. It's a most horrible place in the world. Ugh, I hate bugs. <laughs> That, that that's where those plants turned into those insectivorous things, the Venus flytraps and those. They 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 actually evolved in the bogs. There's so many bugs in the bog that plants evolved to eat them. <laughs> God, if you can 
pitcher plants and all those. Those are bog plants. Okay, anyway, there's bogs in Newfoundland. <clears throat> now, he and Iceland go shooting. Um, uh, I'd get a 12-gauge. He had a 303, and the British 303, and the... It was fun. I I, I got sunny memory. I get I get pictures of our targets. I can picture the bullet hitting the target still. So it was just fun. I like and those weren't negative. Usually you have your negative memories are kind of some of the most substantial. But the uh, maybe there's a certain trauma in shooting because of the 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 blast. And I don't I don't think he and I wore earplugs <laughs> back in those days. Uh, we probably weren't wearing headphones or earplugs or anything. We were probably just letting our ears ring. My ears just rang just thinking about it, so I was probably, which I didn't, I don't have a memory of it, but they probably were ringing. So I don't remember us having earhead, earphones. But okay, let's see, where were we? Although I do remember having them back in the States in the early 70s, so it's possible I could have had them, or some sort of headgear, some sort of ear earmuffs, so it's possible. I'll have to think about that hard. Okay, but anyway, back to shooting. Um, the th Yeah, I love that 303. That's a fun gun. Um, which, which of course taught me, I had us talking to stories while I've got bouncing around in my memories here. Um, back when I grew up, you know, my dad had a chest in the garage, <clears throat> had a bunch of stuff that he'd probably never need or want again, but couldn't have, couldn't throw away. And a couple of things were World War II things. And, uh, one of them was the, I believe it's called the A1 or A4, A1, the, um, a carbine bolt action, and I used to play with that thing all the time. And as a little kid in elementary school, that thing was damn heavy. I mean, to think I I I could not have carried that gun long. It would have the gun just carrying the gun would have wore me. I was a little kid. That was a heavy gun, but I enjoyed playing with it and cocking it and 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 you know doing my little war game things before I. You know, my dad, like I said, was the last generation to believe. Well, actually, no, that's not true because I was. My dad should have been the last generation to actually pretend that going to war is a good thing. It makes you a better person uh, because it, he knew it didn't. And he was never willing to say so, but he was never willing to say the opposite. And uh, he never wanted any of us to become soldiers. The Okay, so where were we? <clears throat> I was back in the garage playing with my weapons. Uh, but that's not where I was supposed to be. I was supposed to be back in Newfoundland. And back in Newfoundland, playing with weapons, that was fun. Um, yeah, back, I used to always carry knives back in those days, even in, in San Diego. I used to carry sheaths, bowie knives and things all the time. That was just natural. We were kind of, you know, it was a pioneer town, pioneer lifestyle back in the 50s and 60s. It wasn't that big a deal. You know, you're going hiking, you'd wear it, so you'd wear it around and, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. We were wearing big knives. <laughs> but if you weren't hiking and stuff, it could look start to look pretentious or challenging. But we were always using them and going hiking, so it had never seemed out of place. And we were always wearing them. Okay, where were we? Back to Newfoundland. That band, Lukey's Boat. I've, maybe I shouldn't... Um, well... This has been, I guess I want to tell the story for some reason. Maybe it's because I think there's some moral issues in here somewhere that I'd like to address, which I'm not even sure what I'm leading up to in addressing them. But it's, we're, we're, we're talking about sex. Okay. So if anybody is, is listening to the, well, let's see, I'm not going to get too, too flagrant, but it's going to be on the subject of sex anyway. Um, and basically <clears throat> in terms of sexual relations in a band. Okay, you got a whole bunch of people in a band, and of course, got all kinds of stories I can tell. But this particular story, which isn't going to get too sexual, I don't think there's any child alerts or anything. But the point is, is that when someone's a boyfriend and a girlfriend, that kind of points to the fact that they're not 
boyfriend and girlfriend with anybody else. That's called monogamous. You're sorry to be so simplistic, but let's just really be okay. In the 70s, monogamy kind of went out the window. It uh, it was old-fashioned, square. Um, Of course, you were bis. A lot of people thought that you had to be bisexual or you were square too. Uh, That's why I kind of earned the name John Wayne cowboy and a few things because I didn't swing both directions but the anyway the um um back in those days there was a free love it was free love and it was anti-marriage marriage was seen as a trap as a as a device as a trick as a religious uh fish hook you know, some, a lot of negatives put into, into marriage. It was really seen, and plus women saw it as a way of, they were, they were being held back and, and, and limited and, and imprisoned within these marriages and not allowed to go out and pursue their other ambitions perhaps also. So, so marriage was, was also, I should, I shouldn't have been the last generation of marriage. They should have been, but they didn't also push that down on us, even though they were all divorcing, starting the divorce trend. Actually, my mother was a pioneer of the divorce trend. If I, in you know, one block radius of where I live, my mother may have been the only woman to get a divorce that I know of. The only one. So she was kind of ostracized, chastised, and, you know, not appreciated for setting a bad example to the other women. And I think the other women didn't like the, uh, the fact that she was kind of destroying the, the, uh, the marriage thing also. But my mom wasn't really doing it for the right reasons. And she actually had a decent marriage. My mom had the least amount of reasons to actually get a divorce of any of them, <laughs> ironically. But okay, where were we? We were in Newfoundland. All right. They got the most beautiful singer in the band. How much of this story am I going to tell? She was gorgeous. Um, I, I she's one of those girls that you know she's gorgeous, but she's somebody else's girl. So you spend you spend three fourths of your energies trying not to look at her, not trying not to talk to her. And back in those days, I was really friendly and huggy, and I'd hug everybody all the time. Well, of the other opposite spec, sex primarily, and um, and in the process, I used to piss off a lot of guys because you know girls liked hugging me. <laughs> so anyway, um, I, I kind of was going through a. I went through different phases of holding back or whatever, and that was in a hold back phase at this point, also for other reasons too. I was kind of in a relationship, so that also made it easy. So, but anyway, and the only reason I say this is because someone in the band said this to me, and she he said she slept with everybody. So, of course, she had slept with him. So. But it was a certain sadness to this. This was not a joyous, oh, yeah, I don't know. It it, it just kind of like, how can sex be such a beautiful thing, bind two people together, perhaps in marriage, but then you can stretch it a little farther and it ruins everything. It ruins friendships, it ruins marriage, it ruins, kind of ruins the future. So sex can, can, can ruin, I think, more than it actually ever helps to make the future a better place. <laughs> it's a dangerous thing. All right, so hopefully I didn't say anything to earn an R rating there. Okay, so back to this. Oop. What am I going to do? Uh, what am I going to do in this band? 
Well, this is how Ab comes into the picture. My good friend, well, we decided we want to make a blues rock band. This is a classical rock band, and I wasn't having fun with them. I mean, maybe I would have eventually if I could have done some more of my type music. But their music was just so complicated, and it was all in sheet music. I wasn't. I was not having fun. And uh, I wanted to have fun. Me and music are about fun. So, so I decided that what I was going to do was form a blues rock band with my friend Abby. And we did. And we, we formed a blues rock band. And I think I named it. Now, at the time, I was quite the big Frank Zappa fan. I loved his first couple of Experience albums and with the Mothers of Invention. And I... I think I was influenced by that attitude a little bit. And the name of the band I created, or the name that I named it, I'm pretty sure it was me, it was Dog Meat. And that was the name of our band. And we performed a whole bunch of gigs. And I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to save my, my story, because it's already been almost 12 minutes here on this story. And, and uh, let's see if I can remember to tell you about Dog Meat and uh, a gig we played that turned into a riot. Oh yeah, Richard Del Conner here, and this was a history of me in Newfoundland, uh, 1971, yeah, somewhere between 70 and 72. This is a test of the Shaolin podcast system. You will have no desire to perform acts of violence and will enjoy smiling whenever possible. Do not be alarmed by friendly behavior. This has been a test of the Shaolin podcast system. Hello. I'm here to talk about, um, well, actually, this is going to go, we're going to go back to the Newfoundland stories. I've got some uh, um, Newfoundland stories, and I, I actually told one tonight. And then this is a song from the Level 1 album called In the Darkness. Now, this is actually... A really, it was written with lyrics, and the lyrics are the poem, In the Darkness poem, on this same album. So when you get the level one equals peace of mind album, you'll notice there's two versions of In the Darkness. This is the instrumental version. When I was recording the album, I realized, ah, oh, this song is just so sad, you know? It's, it's kind of nice without any vocals, and so I just kind of liked it bare. It, it kind of took you somewhere, <laughs> which was an interesting version of where I was kind of like picturing this guy and leading him away from it at the same time. So, In the Darkness, it's written about someone I signed to my music publishing company, my Shaolin Music is my music publishing company. It's with ASCAP. And I'm the main artist, but I have signed over the years a few other artists to my music publishing company, Shaolin Music, and he's one of them. And unfortunately, I signed him right before everything kind of like fell apart and I moved to Utah and destroyed my life. <laughs> so, unfortunately, uh, that guy's probably all pissed at me because I kind of, like, when my life crashed, he crashed with me then, and just like it crashed again uh, a few years ago. So, anyway, the um, song is written about this artist and, and about his despondency as I left and he felt abandoned, which he was. I didn't, I wasn't so certain. I was hoping I had aspirations of success. I didn't realize I was going to be going in the wrong direction. Utah ended up 
well, the re- let's see, how would I put it? It was a kind of a role reversal. That's where I was really forced to take over the kids full-time, and she worked full-time. Up to that point, I was kind of supporting the both of us with my construction or my music or my performances or my concerts or my photography, and then uh, she didn't have to work, and I, in fact, I was even trying to pay her for some of the work she was doing for me once in a while. So, anyway, the uh, this song... Now here's the kind of the, uh, as you can see, it kind of jumps up. I think that's me trying to push him into the water. He lived down in San, Cap- San Juan Capistrano near the nuclear power plants, San Onofre. And so uh, going to the beach was a really cool thing, except I was kind of like nervous to get the water, but trying to encourage him to <laughs> get down on the beach. But the problem was he was from England and he was very talented. He had, I mean, I wouldn't have signed him if I didn't believe in his talent. And he had some artistic talent and some creativity. And unfortunately, of course, a lot of artists be, are, are weak and fragile emotionally. Switched. So he, I think, was despondent. And here I am trying to cheer him up a little bit now. Trying to pull him out of the, the doldrum of, of struggle. Struggle doesn't always have, I don't know, unless you get some big rewards to keep you going, which I, yeah. So, it, it, I, I should take the blame for anything that's wrong. I was the publishing company, and I kind of went belly up. In fact, I still got to put it back together. After all these years, I still have not reestablished Shaolin Music to where it was when I signed him. I had gotten a few songs in a couple of movies that year, and yeah, I was, I was doing things, and things were going to keep doing things, but then I stopped. In 1991, long-distance phone calls were very expensive, so communicating between Salt Lake City and Los Angeles became formidable. So I became isolated. I had, in a way, yeah, very isolated. Well, I made my choice. I decided I was wanted to raise my daughter, and uh, and I thought I would be somehow adva- advantaged to be an artist among all the sheep. Here's my enthusiasm at the type still. <laughs> I'm trudging along, dancing along, saying everything's going to be okay. Boy, was I wrong. That's why I never say that. I never try to say everything's going to be okay unless I'm absolutely certain. Never want to just say that as an expression. In the Darkness by American Zen. Curious to see how that turned out. Oh, this next song here is a slide guitar. This is Rory G on slide. So that was American Zen, and uh, let's see, in terms of making that song, that was a four-track song. Listen to it. It's just an acoustic guitar, bass, and drums. The acoustic guitar and drums were cut on one track. Uh, The bass was cut on another track, and then it's two synthesizers, uh, two analog synthesizers. Roy didn't play any electric guitar. 
Hey, Richard Del Connor here, and welcome to the Basement Tapes of Shaolin Records. And I've got one of my favorite songs. It's never been recorded. I don't even know if it's ever been performed live on stage. It was recorded right in the very early 80s, 81, 82, I mean, written then. And a bunch of people liked it, and I might have performed it solo, but maybe not. So it's a, to me, it's a kind of a song that's never had a chance to evolve. But the real pro- interesting thing about it is my voice has, of course, gotten lower since then. <laughs> and and so it's a lot easier for me to sing it lower. So I was just checking out the song a minute ago, and there was a harmony to it, which is actually higher than the part that's on there. And I might share that with you after I practice it. <laughs> and then Hopefully, it would not be laughable. I would like to think that I could make it decent, or at least enjoyable, but uh, um, somebody else should sing that high part. But actually, and then I remember some time ago, I tried singing the high part an octave lower, and I was a little awkward with that, kind of like John Lennon used to do to Paul McCartney. And uh, I wasn't able to quite fit that in, but maybe I'll try it. But this is a fun song. Maybe I'll just share it with you, because I really like it, and to me, it's very inspiring. It's called No Hope in Surrender. And I remember when I performed it for this one um, fellow, um, I was working for him. He a real professional, real, really, maybe he's really, really famous now. <laughs> I should find him. I built him a studio. I took his garage and turned it into a video. No, actually, I was, I, I was, long story there. I built him a video studio in his home. We'll leave it at that. He did commercials mainly, soundtracks for commercials. Very talented soundtrack um, arranger type of person. And, um, yeah, I so anyway, I played this for him and he just was astounded. He said he couldn't believe that I pulled off this chord change. He said he'd never heard a song that did this particular chord change, which is really interesting because there's only so many chords, you know, there's like a dozen in minors and you got, anyway, the point being is this is a very unique song. If you actually kind of get the group, listen to the, the, the chord structure of it, it's, it's a very unusual, here we go. Not talk. Let's just play this, this doodly. Okay. Never 
advice that they were taking Advice has all become a curse No one knows how best to win the game Justice will prove to the phony names that I like that song. I'm sorry if it's depressing to you, but it's somehow inspiring to me. That's No Hope and Surrender. Uh, and I actually put it in my iPod here under Solo Coyote. And uh, um, I actually have a website, solocoyote.com, which I needed to develop. That was a Solo Coyote just singing and playing with himself. Coyote Radio dot. TV. Come here, come here, come here. Check this stuff out. We got exclusive artists of Shaolin Records and some, we've got it in audiobooks, we have it in podcasts, we have it in music, we have it in sound, did I say soundtracks? And we've got some actual, um, well, you'll see. We're going to add a whole bunch of stuff. We even have a comedy sketch already. All right. So coyoteradio.tv. Come check it out. We got some cool, uh, actually cool stuff. We got good stuff. Richard Del Connor here and a record producer story. Had all kinds of ideas and stuff, but then not the cuff. I somehow started thinking about when I was working with Frank Zappa. Now, it actually started that I was, let's see, was he at the studio when I first got there in 78, late 78? Um, not sure. I think maybe not. No, he wasn't because I think Supertramp was still in that studio. So he got in there when uh, Supertramp left. Anyway, I'll have to try to remember all that. But anyway, I was with Supertramp and him for a while because they were in there for like a couple months at a time. So, and I was in there every day. So, you know, we'd cross paths, hang out, did a few sessions with some of the artists in the different bands and Frank Zappa's band and Supertramp and even played with a, in a, a soundtrack with Mick Fleetwood of Fleetwood Mac. Um, you know, a bunch of different people because I was just there and they were looking for things to do and they grabbed me out and pulled me in. <clears throat> so it was fun. It was fun being in that situation. It was also kind of competitive. I had people working against me because they wanted the record deal and not me. And so it was, it, it, there was politics involved. <laughs> anyway, the Village Record, that was a really neat period of my life when I was working there. And that was when he did the album Chic Your Booty. Now, I was now I was a huge Frank Zappa fan. The first couple albums he did with the Mothers of Invention and um, uh, I was very influenced by him, his attitude, his his weirdness, and his ability to bend and break the rules. Kind of like, it didn't mean that I wanted to do it like him or break the rules either, but it widened my perspectives of where I could go and what I might want to even do. So he was a big factor, and his sarcasm and, and stuff, I think, hit me also at that punky time of my life, being a teenager, you know, for age 13 to, to 18. You know, he, so he influenced me during that period, or 13 to 16, anyway. Anyway, 13 to 15, 16. Anyway, in that short, brief period, it was a big influence. Just realized that, <laughs> that was this window of opportunity. So it was actually very disappointing when I finally did meet him and work alongside him and realized I didn't like him. 
you know? Okay, so I know this, everybody's a Frank Zappa fan, so I won't go any farther with it. But no, him and I never had, uh, it's not like, I would be interesting if he ever said anything about me. Well, we just avoided each other. It was the weirdest thing. And I'd be willing to talk about it more another time. But uh, at this point, I, I wanted to just mention that uh, uh, when I was, because uh, I was a, I was the carpenter, I was a staff carpenter at Village Recorder, and so he, a lot of the artists would hire me to do their other projects and build cabinets and speakers and things for them. And Frank Zappa asked me to come up and um, finish his room. I think Rudy Brewer did most of the work, but I came in and built some of the cabinets and the rolling rack mount that uh, you know they'd move around the floor with all the equipment in it, all the very expensive equipment in it, and uh, and so I, I built a bunch of furniture and some things to go in there and some things I was actually working there because I had to install them into the walls and build some cabinetry I believe into the back wall behind the um, console I can remember something back there I did so much work for so many people back then and, but anyway I was there and the little kids but there's the funny story about building this little these rack units uh, which by the way I still have some uh, this when I last did uh, was doing my move and I, I was trying to get rid of all kinds of stuff and just pass it off on the ex-wife because she had a has a musician husband now so I thought oh, maybe he could use these rack rails and stuff but I still had some of those from back then they may even be leftovers from when I built those rack things for uh, Frank Zappa, because they're very expensive, these rack reels, so I'd have to order them in like four or six foot segments or something at the smallest. And uh, then I would cut them into smaller pieces and, and build the units for them. And I had this one rack reel that's just been hanging around and following me around forever. And uh, I tried to get rid of it, but it just came back to me. But it may be a rack rail from the leftover from the rack, from the jobs that I, he may have been, because he may have been the last person I built those things for. I can't, I'll have to think about that. No, that's not true. He may not have been the last but still, I may have a rack rail from them. Anyway, uh, when when I was building those, the last part of the story I want to say, and I was working in his home every day, there was two little kids running around. Now, I actually didn't see Moon Unit, but a couple of times, because she must have only been, I don't know, in, in, what are we talking, 1979, 80, 81 at the latest. I'm thinking maybe 79, 80. I have to figure out. Wait, we just had to figure out when his studio was done, and that's when I was there. Um Anyway, the, his kids were really, really teeny, so obviously they wouldn't remember me. But Moon Unit and uh, there's a Dweezel or whatever, and uh, I. Uh, but they were running around, and they were cute little kids, and and so yeah, I was up there in the house building a studio, seeing his kids run around, working with him in the studio, recording with some of his bandmates, watching how he worked, and seeing what he does, and listening to the conversations. <laughs> And the music. All right. So let's see. Where were we? Okay. Is that long enough? Okay. We got to five minutes here. So uh, that was my record producer story. We're talking late 70s, early 80s. And it, it was, um, yeah, it, it's fun. It's fun being a creator. I love, Now, when I got into the movie business, I realized, wow, I like this better because there's less scumbags around. There's, there's, less, there's less people who just got here by luck. You know, and to be in the movie business, you had to have a little more sophistication, education, experience, or nepotism. You have to be really born into that a lot. A large percentage of people are born into that industry. And, uh, you know, power to them. I do it for my kids, too, so I'm not really complaining about it. I, I wanted my kid. that's the irony, is I wanted my kids to follow behind me and be in my industry and, and give them all the advantages and opportunities I could. And they said, nah, no thanks. All right. Hey, I don't want to leave on that note. So Shaolin Records uh, podcast here. I'm telling you this Richard Del Connor leaving a um, uh, record producer story. Anything I want to say technically? Um, technically, the with that console that 
Frank Zappa was using in Studio B, I want to say, Studio B in Village Recorder, he took that console, and that is the console he put into his home studio and used for everything after that. So uh, I thought that was interesting. And, and I know what that's like as an artist to kind of like, you get comfortable with something and then you don't want to relearn something else. You just want to do what you want to do without having to struggle so hard. So when you do get comfortable with a console, you do kind of marry into it a little bit. And he married into that one so much, he took it home. And so if I was to actually marry into a console now, I don't know which one I would do. Back in those days, there were several. I loved the Neve. Automation was just coming in. Uh, the Trident was awesome. I had I had wonderful experiences with the Trident also. Um, it's, I'm not sure what would be the, the right thing for today. What's the most, well, everything's digital, but it's so nice to have the faders and the big things and see them moving around. So, although I do it in, do it on the console, I don't know, this, uh, I think if I had the money in the room and the space, I'd still put an old fashioned console in there with everything, sliders moving around and big dials to turn. That's what I'd kind of like to do.